0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Jeff. I uh, I don't ever mind getting upstaged by Jeff Bice our pastor of missions. Nobody, I don't think in this part of the world, knows, gets, understands, leads, and loves missions like Jeff Bice. And everything that we do is mission. Everything that we do is carrying the gospel forth, that God's word would sound forth, that his people, that his word, that his spirit would be known. So I'm thankful for Jeff for his uh, for his ministry, for his partnership in the gospel. I'm thankful for the Ackersons for what you guys are doing there. We don't get to be in Houston. We're here, but I'm thankful that you guys are rightly representing and carrying forth the message. And speaking of the message, I want to add my greeting and my welcome. I'm Eric Barton, and I do get to pastor down here, and I'm delighted that you're here in our first service. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. We think that, we, that our God literally has divinely directed your steps to be here, that he wants to communicate something through his word. This Bible that we read, this book that we study, is one great, grand narrative. And really, that's what religion essentially is. It's an organizing narrative. It's the thing that really sort of dictates, drives, determines our lives. It helps us to understand how we think. It helps us to understand the things that we love. That's what religion is. It's the organizing narrative. And it's a great over uh, many thousands of years sweeping story that is packed full of several uh, smaller stories that are massive in their time and in their happening. And like all great epic sagas and all great epic tales, there are stories of war. All of the great stories from Homer's it is, uh, Odyssey and the Iliad, where we have the Trojan Wars with Achilles and King Agamemnon and all of those guys, Menelaus, all the way through to modern tellings, things like Lord of the Rings. There's these epic struggles that culminate in a great grand war. And usually after the war, there's this sort of euphoric time of what we call Reconstruction where after the war is over, the people can finally begin to live and to thrive together again in relative peace, and there is healing, and there is a spring that follows the winter, that kind of an idea. And I even think about our own history following World Wars I and Two. Clearly, after those wars, there were some very trying times, and yet they were golden seasons where people generally lived with a thankfulness because of the end of the conflict and the, the return of their loved ones, but also... Just a a persistent gratitude for those who had laid down their lives so that we as a nation could experience freedom and prosperity. There's always sort of a a golden age of reconstruction but there was one war in our history that still gives me that icky feeling in my gut every time I think about it and it was our own civil war. I still hate to hear the history stories about it because quite literally every time someone died it was an American. And so as a kid, in my oversimplistic way of thinking of things, it was like, man, this is the worst possible thing. You've got the good guys killing the good guys. Every single casualty was an American, Americans killing Americans. And it created or revealed such a dramatic shift and a schism in culture and government and politics and culture and all those things that after the Civil War, the time of Reconstruction was anything but euphoric. And it actually goes without saying, which means, of course, that I'm going to say it, we still haven't fully even healed from what occurred in our nation 150 years ago. But just imagine if it didn't come down to our culture, our government, our politics. What if there was one who was man, who was also God, perfect, sinless, and yet also all-powerful and loving? What if he was literally really in charge of everything? And Wouldn't that be great? I wonder if you ever allow yourself just to think about that. Well, this morning, in this long sweeping book of our Bible, we're going to cover a chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And we're going to get to see a period of reconstruction. Because about 3,000 years ago, another nation went through a horrific, brutal civil war. This nation, Israel, had been given a king, this man who was called a man after God's own heart, who had been anointed by God's prophet, who had demonstrated tremendous acts of faith and of courage and of loyalty to God, who, who subdued the enemies of Israel, who uh, ex- expanded and shored up the borders of Israel and who reigned for three decades. But as soon as somebody came along who was better looking with a better head of hair, they jumped ship on him. And a civil war broke out. The insurrectionist was his own son, Absalom, and David has had to flee, which we've covered a lot of ground this spring semester. We've been studying the life of David, this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king. And this morning, at long last, we come to our penultimate message, Lord willing, next week we will land the plane and have our final message in the life of David. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I have really come to know this guy. I've sort of come to, to have an affection for David, and all that he experienced, all that he did. And now this king is coming back victorious, about to bring in this age of reconstruction. And this strange story, this strange chapter in our Bible, is actually preparing us for and pointing us to something. That which was foretold by the prophet Isaiah, and it's also our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. Pretty basic. The government will be on his shoulders. Maybe for some of you, that's just all you need to hear. You can get up and go. There's coffee downstairs. But that's very good news. The government will be on his shoulders here and there and everywhere. There will be no place that he does not rule. So we've had this uh, civil war where Absalom, the insurrectionist, has rebelled against his father. He's been killed. David has had to flee across the Jordan River to the east where all these wars have been fought. He mourns for his son, but Joab, his general, tells him, you have to go and love the people, lead the people, guide the people, guard the people. This David does. Which brings us now, finally, to 2 Samuel chapter 19. I'm just going to begin reading this. We're going to walk through beginning in verse 8, and we're going to walk through the whole chapter and see what God has for us here. 2 Samuel chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. Now, he's still up at Mahanaim, the land of two camps, which is to the north and to the east across the Jordan River. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. It's the first flicker of reconstruction. The people want to come and see their king. Now Israel fled every man to his own home. Now Israel primarily refers to the ten northern tribes. When they see that Absalom is dead, when it's all over, when 20,000 of their countrymen have been killed, they all just run away and go back to their homes. And then they get wind of the fact that David is still to the east across the Jordan. And they begin to bicker with their own leadership. They begin to sort of snip at their elders. Says in verse nine, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, "The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom." <laughs> this is the people saying, and I quote, "Don't, uh-oh." This David, he was undefeated. Every battle he won on our behalf, or he fought on our behalf, he won. He destroyed the Philistines, a superior army of larger people with more weapons, including metal. David destroyed them. He wiped out the Ammonites. He secured our borders. He was our king, but now he's had to flee, not because of anything that he has done, but because of what we have done. The man we anointed king over ourselves, Absalom, well, now he's dead. But the king that God anointed over us, he's still alive and he's coming back. Elders, why aren't we rushing out to fix this just yet? Verse 10, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Somebody do something or this is going to go very bad for us. Verse 11, and King David sent this message. David hears about this and says, I'm going to initiate. I'm going to instigate. I'm going to move toward them. And he decides he's going to start with the southern kingdom of Judah because they are his own people. They are his own flesh, his own blood, and they are so ashamed of their betrayal that they're not coming to get him. So David says, I'm going to move my life towards them, because that's what a king of grace does, you see. David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? David understands that the ten northern tribes are about to muster and want to bring him back. And David says, no, no, Judah must lead. Judah is the first in conquest under the the leadership of Joshua. It has to be Judah. Verse 12, You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? He was from Bethlehem in Judah. His own people had betrayed him. And he's going to say something really astonishing here in verse 13. Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. This is interesting. David is going to take a former Gentile enemy. Amasa had been placed as commander of Absalom's army. Amasa is an Ishmaelite. He is, what we would say today, is from uh, Arab descent. And yet he is married into David's family. So he's family, but he's Gentile. And now the king of grace is going to bring this Gentile in to make the rest of Judah jealous. See also Romans 11, 11, because that's what the king of grace does. The king of grace uses former Gentile enemies and brings them into his home, elevates, dignifies, and unleashes them so that Israel will become jealous and one day return to their king. We see that already as David elevates Amasa. And he relieves Joab of command. Joab was also in his family. Joab was the son of David's older sister, And Joab had repeatedly defied David. He had killed Abner. He wasn't supposed to. He had killed Absalom. He wasn't supposed to. Later on, we're going to find in the next chapter, he's also going to kill Amasa. Essentially, if your name begins with an A in Israel, Joab's going to kill you. That's how that works. And so he's relieved of command, and Amasa, this Gentile, is placed in a position of authority. Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me if I do not put you in commander of my army from now on in place with Joab. Verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king return, both you and all your servants. David still got it. He still knows how to work the hearts, lives, and minds of his people. Verse 15, so the king came back to the Jordan River from the east, and Judah came to Gilgal, which is on the west bank, to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So I want you to get the scene in your mind. David's up in the northeast across the Jordan River. He's at Mahanaim. He comes all the way to the river and he stops. He will not force himself back in. He will only come if he is invited. So all of Judah goes from Jerusalem. They travel northeast to the west bank of the Jordan River, and there they encounter, and they can see one another across the water. That's right, because the Jordan uh, is about from this stage to that chair. It's not that big. Some of you with a running jump could get across mm, some of it. The rest of us, not so much. But it's not a big space. It's right there. But it's a ceremonial border for Israel, and David will not force his way back in. There he waits. Verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. This is uh, some Hebrew humor. You might remember from a couple chapters ago, Shimei comes out of Bahurim, which is just a little bit to the northeast of Jerusalem. It's the same place as Nob, where several chapters ago, King Saul had killed all of the priests at Nob. Saul was a Benjamite. This guy, Shimei is a Benjamite. As David is fleeing out of Jerusalem, Shimei comes out and throws stones at him, dirts him with dirt, and hurls curses at him the entire time he's walking away. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, says, let me kill this dog. He doesn't deserve to live. And David says, no, we're not going to have any killings today. This guy, when he sees that all of Judah is going to meet the king, he rushes forward and end around them. He's going to be the first one there. He goes around the men of Judah and he gets to David first. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. They're not mustered for war this is Shimei's way of making peace, of offering uh, a token of his apology. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul. With his 15 sons and 20 servants, that's quite an entourage, they rushed down to the Jordan before the king. Now we haven't heard from Ziba since chapter 16 when he obviously slandered and lied about his master Mephibosheth who was the grandson of King Saul. Now both of these guys are going to rush down to the banks of the Jordan to meet King David. It's finally time for David to get his comeuppance because both of these guys deserve some vengeance. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. Now it's really interesting, uh, Ziba, this former servant of Saul, the servant of Mephibosheth, never says a word, doesn't have to. He just begins to get to work and he begins to ferry people back and forth. He's demonstrating his loyalty, but it's merely transactional. He never says a word. He's clearly a deceiver, a manipulator, and a liar. But he simply gets to work, and the king knows this. We'll find out much later. And allows him to work anyway. He's a liar, but he's a useful liar. He brought provisions. He brought food. He brought water. He brought wine. And the king tolerates him, even though he knows he's not true. And then we get this story about Shimei. Verse 18 says that uh, Shimei fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So Shimei has crossed over to the east side. He runs up to David, the one that he had thrown rocks at, the one that he had dirted with dirt, the one that he had cursed incessantly. What do you think David will do? I didn't say, what do you think I would do? <laughs> what do you think David will do? and actually verse 19 Shimei says to the king let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem do not let the king take it to heart don't remember all those rocks I threw at your face and the dirt that's in your clothes even to this day just just let's just say that that never happened so he apologizes but with benefits he apologizes with sort of an explanation and a token for your servant knows that I have sinned yes I did a wrong thing therefore behold I have come this day the first of all of the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king yeah 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 I made a mistake but I have atoned for my error do you see I have delivered the people of Benjamin to you I have fixed my problem no he hasn't Abishai verse 21 the son of Zeruiah answered shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed yes I like this guy this guy I've actually already contacted about being an elder in our church but he's dead so it's not going to happen second time he's met Shimei and decided I want to remove this guy's head from his neck and if I'm David I'm just giving him the wink and watching that thing just roll for distance but not David but David said What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? I don't need this. I don't think like you think. I don't do like you do. I don't operate like you operate, Abishai. I will not repay tooth for tooth. I will not repay blood for blood, eye for eye. The king of grace will extend clemency. It's really a shocking thing, not at all what we expect. Verse 23, and the king said to Shimei, you shall not die, and the king gave him his oath. David says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to have you killed. However, what we'll find out is that Shimei's apology was nothing more than an apology, not repentance. David never forgot his treachery. As David is going to die in the very beginning of 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, he tells Solomon, Solomon, as soon as you ascend the throne, the first thing you've got to do is you take that old man's head clean off. Do not let him die of natural causes. You put him down, he is a snake. And Solomon does precisely that. Now then, verse 24, we're going to meet our third character study. We've had Zeba, we've had Shimei, now we're going to see Mephibosheth. Ah, we haven't seen Mephibosheth until uh, since chapter 16 when he was lied about. The son of Saul, which is actually the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, he came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard. Some of you have teenagers like this. You know what this is all about. Nor washed his clothes. You're thinking, yeah, this is Thanksgiving at my house. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. This guy says, no. I'm not going to take care of myself. I will fill up in my body the sufferings of my anointed king. I will be so identified. I will not take care of my feet. I will not trim my hair. I will not wash wash my clothes. As he suffers, so too I will suffer, which was a very dangerous thing because he was in Jerusalem where Absalom had been reigning and he could see that Mephibosheth was aligning himself against all other odds, saying, I don't care, kill me, take me, torture me, I will not betray my king. And I will identify with him in good times and in bad. I like this Mephibosheth guy. Even though he's been slandered and even though he's been lied about. Verse 25, and when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? You might remember that Mephibosheth was lied about by Ziba. Ziba said that, oh yeah, Mephibosheth is wanting to launch an insurrection against you, and he thinks that he's going to get the throne of Saul back from you. And so David makes a, a snap decision in fatigue and in frustration and fear, always a bad time to make a decision, and gives all of Mephibosheth's estate to Ziba. Now David says, why, why, why didn't you come? I wanted to be with you when I was fleeing. Why didn't you come? Verse 26, he answered, My lord, O king, my servant, Ziba, deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. I love the fact that Mephibosheth adds that back in. Oh, really? I, I had forgotten that you were, you were crippled there. And by the way, could you get a shower, please? For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. He knows everything do not therefore or do therefore what seems good to you for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king but you set your servant among those who eat at your table what further right have i then to cry to the king listen i'm a people of curse i was an enemy but you extended grace you sat me at your table you dined with me we had relationship we had friendship i don't care about this stuff i'm just glad that you're alive Verse 29, and the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. David cannot undo his verbal kingly decree, but he can modify it. So he's going to split the proceeds now. And I love what Mephibosheth says. Mephibosheth said to the king, verse 30, oh, let him take it all. Since my lord, the king has come safely home. I don't care about the stuff. I don't care about your gifts. I don't care about your blessings. I just want to be with you, my king of grace, who gave me life, who gave me dignity, who gave me love, who gave me respect, who gave me relationship. I like this Mephibosheth guy. Well, verse 31, we're going to meet our fourth character study. And I really like this guy. If I had to do it all over again, I might just name a dude this. Verse 31, now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. We met this guy last week in chapter 17. He comes from Gilead. He's a wealthy old rancher. I like this guy. He got leathery hands. He can skin a buck and run a trot line. I like this guy. He's been strong and steady for 80 years. All while David was in exile, it was Barzillai that brought him food and wine and water and provisions, even furniture for his household to sleep on. This guy was a man of means, and he didn't care that he was identified with this king. If somehow Absalom wins the war, then Barzillai is going to be target number one because he facilitated, he fueled, he resourced David. And now that the, the war is over, Barzillai comes and meets David at the Jordan River. And I love this interchange. Verse 33. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Barzillai, you're 80 years old. You're an old man. You provided for me while I was in the wilderness. Now, Come with me to Jerusalem. Let me take care of you. Come be with me in my court. Barzillai, I've got an electric blanket with your name on it. Barzillai, listen, I've got coupons to Lubies. We're going to watch Matlock. It's going to be marvelous. You can just sit back, kick back, and just, just relax. What do you think an old wealthy rancher is going to say? Huh. But Barzillai, verse 34, said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm about half past dead, David. I'm not going with you. Are you kidding me? I am this day 80 years old. And then this is one of my favorite verses. It's high Hebrew humor. It's wonderful. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Man, I'm so old. I can't tell. Come here from Sikkim. I don't know if it's good or bad. I've I've lost my wits. I'm an old man. I can't be on your cabinet. I can't serve as one of your counselors. I, I don't know anymore. Can I tell what is pleasant what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? <laughs> my taste buds are shot, bro. Everything is sawdust to me. I, listen, I don't care about those things anymore. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? I don't hear so good. I can't taste anything. I can't see so good. Yeah, I, I don't know that this is a good idea for me to leave my ranch, David. Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? I'm not going to come with you. I'm not gonna do that, just, just let me go home, let me watch Wapner, let me sort my soup, let me, just, let me just die in the land of my mother and my father. But, but there are two things that I would request, and I love this. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. I love this, of all the people that come to get King David from the east side of the Jordan to escort him back across the river as he re-enters his city, Barzillai says, all I want, man, I just want to be the one on the boat with you. That's all I care about. I just want to be in the boat with you, my king. I'm just going to tell you, I read this this week, and I got choked up. I was like, oh, how often do I fail to feel that intensely about my king? Like, I don't care about anything else. I just want to be the one on the boat. I just want to ride with you across the Jordan. And we're not talking about a long distance. This is not a ferry ride in Galveston. This is from here, stroke, stroke, we're there. But he wants to be seen as the one in the boat with the king because he knows the next time this many people are gathered around and he is seen, he's going to be flat on his back, dead as a hammer. So while he lives, he wants to be in the boat with the king. Man, I love this guy. Your servant will go a little way with you over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Listen, I just want to be the one on the boat with you. But listen, but who am I to ask? You're the king. That's all I'm asking. And number two, please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham we think probably, doesn't say explicitly, we think this is probably Barzillai's son. But would you take my son with you? Would you forge him and fashion him to be a man like you? Would you take my son with you? Let him go over with my Lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. Man, I love this. I just want to be the guy with the king and I want the king to love my kids. I just want my kids to love the king. Would you take my kids would you take my son and would you form him, fashion him, forge him into the kind of man that you are? And the king answered, Kimam shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. And about 500 years later in Jeremiah 41 we learn of a prosperous bountiful land called the land of Kimam. Apparently it worked. David made a man out of this boy. Verse 39, Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. You'll notice there was no kiss for Ziba, no kiss for Shimei. We're not told about Mephibosheth. But this old guy, the king says, I love you, buddy. Verse 40 the king went on to Gilgal. That's on the west side of the Jordan. And Kimon went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 41 the problems with reconstruction. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? And all David's men with him, all the men of Judah, answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us why have you stolen why have you despised you see the uh the rift still remains were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king but the words of the men of judah were fiercer than the words of the men of israel i'm just going to set this right here apparently the people in the south have a little bit more trash talk than the people in the north i'm going to let you deal with that figure that one out and so we have a rift, sort of a harbinger, sort of an omen, sort of a predictive. We're going to see discord in the nation. We're going to see problems. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, was told, the sword will not depart from your house. And we're going to see that David will actually lose four of his sons. So far he's lost Amnon so far he's lost the unnamed child from Bathsheba so far he's lost Absalom in the following chapter he's going to have yet another son that's going to rebel and he too will be killed four sons will die and the nation will have one last monarch under Solomon and then in one generation the nation will be torn asunder the very best of men is men at best David and Solomon cannot hold the realm together and that's just one nation but one day one day, the government will be on his shoulders, not on David's, but the son of David. There's a hundred things we could pull from this strange, long, winding chapter of Reconstruction, but let me just give you four quick character studies. The four men that we met other than David, and perhaps one of these resonates with each of you. Let me first talk about Zeba. Ziba, here's a guy that served the king for all the wrong reasons, He is only in it for what he can get for himself. It's purely transactional. It's business, not personal. He does whatever it takes to take care of his own immediate desires. He hedges his bets, and he tries to cover all his bases, and it seems like he gets away with it. It looks like there will be no consequence for him. Because of his scheming and manipulation and lying and slander and deviousness, he's going to wind up with half of an estate. But... There is no relationship with the king. He does not love the king for the king's sake, and so there is forever the absence of relationship and legacy. He is not known by the king. He is not a friend, and he is not loved by the king. David will write later in many psalms that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Zeba is never heard from again. There is no legacy. There is no lineage of his in Israel. So I just wonder... Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a Ziba. You want the king's favor, but you don't love the king. You just want his blessing. It does not end well for Ziba. Number two, Shimei. Here's a guy that absolutely resents his station in life. Why is everything so hard? Why is everything working out wrong? The coming of this king of grace has upset his apple cart. He was going to be the recipient of blessing from his relative king Saul, but this new king has upset all of that. It's thwarted his own plans for prosperity. So he is a snake that curses God's anointed when given the chance, but he's going to bow and scrape and pay lip service when cornered and caught. Well, he admits his error, and he says all the right things, but it's apparently an empty apology that does not include any authentic repentance nor relationship. His life is temporarily spared, but he receives no kiss from the king. And as I've already mentioned, in a couple chapters in it, 1 Kings 1 and 2, Shimei will be put down as well. Then we have Mephibosheth. Perhaps you can resonate with this guy. He is a legitimate victim. His only error was that his grandfather was a crazy King Saul and that he'd been dropped by his nurse and been crippled. But despite all that, This Mephibosheth guy shines as a glorious example of what it looks like to love the king and simply want to be with him because of the grace and mercy shown. All of the stuff of life doesn't matter so long as he has the king. All the stuff of the world amounts to nothing if we don't have the king. He realizes the sorry state of his lostness. I'm a dead man from a disconnected, cursed people, but you extended grace Mercy, love, relationship, and dignity. And so I will forever identify and enter into the suffering of my king. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're in a state of Mephiboshethedness. Well, God bless you. Continue on. It's worth it. Or perhaps this morning you're a Barzillai. I love this guy. He's finishing well. So many stories of people who don't finish well, this guy finishes well. He has used all of his resources to serve his king, even when it might have been unpopular and dangerous to do so. His loyalty is rooted in love. He doesn't get caught up in all the pomp and circumstance. He knows who he is, and he knows who his king is, and he loves his king. His greatest desire is to be with his king and identified with his king. And his legacy is leading his next generation into a relationship with his king. that king that points us to the future Messiah that we get to look back to, and yet this king will come again and the government will be on his shoulders. Reminds me that the more things change, the more things stay the same. 3,000 years ago, Israel and Judah are in a civil war. About 150 years ago in our own history, we had a civil war. Whereas George Washington has been called the father of our nation, Lincoln has been called the savior. Lincoln stood against the horrible evil of slavery. As a boy, he wrote about walking up and down the banks of the Mississippi River and seeing people being bought and sold like cattle. Lincoln had to do something that no other president has ever had to do before or since. He had to go to war against other Americans. After the war, the question was given him, what are we going to do about reconstruction? Do we treat the South as enemies? Do we institute martial law? Do we position troops in the South? Or do we allow the North to just simply take over? And Lincoln said, no. Astonishingly and surprisingly, Lincoln said, no. We will get rid of our enemies by making them friends. It's a direct quote. I love that. We will have charity toward all and malice toward none. He showed mercy. And this is what Jesus, the Christ, does. He gets rid of enemies by making them friends. He rids adversaries by making them sons and heirs. But for those who simply will not bend the knee and bow the heart, who will not allow themselves to love this king, he will come again. And as with Shimei, justice and judgment will be served. And so if you're here this morning, I just want you to know we've seen pretty much all the characters that, that exist in our world. Those who pay lip service, those who are devious serpents and snakes, those who are victims, and those who are finishing well. But if you're not a believer this morning, I'm going to invite you to believe. All of God's word, we believe, is pointing us to and preparing us for the Messiah. He has come, and He will come again. And in the meantime, we, most of us as Gentiles, get to have fealty allegiance and loyalty to our King as He uses us to reach into His people Israel again i invite you to believe that he is the christ he is who he says he was he did what he said he would do he fulfilled the demands of the law he paid the wages of sin which is death for the rest of us you've been a believer perhaps for a very long time just want to encourage you all over again with this life of david the greater david has come and he will come again do you want to be in the boat with the king let's pray father we do thank you that even now you rule, you reign, and yet, Father, there is still so much reconstruction. And so we ask, God, for eyes to see, for hearts to love, for hands to serve in this still as yet broken world. As your kingdom sounds forth, may we be about it. Father, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray, God, that you will use this time together by your Spirit to lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son that against all explanation, they simply believe. And for the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us? Would you rekindle our affection, our our loyalty from love for the King? And may you give us the spark to lead future generations to know of your faithfulness. God, we love you because you first loved us and you, the King of grace, moved your life toward us. We thank you. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.